So, you know, ancient stoicism is more consistent with modern evidence-based psychotherapy than anything Sigmund Freud ever said. How weird is that? Like, so I'd be, I'd say that to justify my seemingly hyperbolic claim right, right. that 2000 years ago, the Stoics were way ahead of their game in terms of psychotherapy. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Trombley and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this episode, I speak with Donald Robertson. Donald is the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. In addition to a number of other excellent books, he is a psychotherapist by training and one of the key players behind modern Stoicism. We talk about Socrates, Epicureanism, ways that different psychological techniques can backfire, and the state of Stoicism today. This is one of my favorite episodes. Donald has expertise in both psychotherapy and Stoic philosophy, and for that reason he has many significant things to say that have shaped how I and many others think about Stoic theory and practice. Here is A Stoa Conversation with Donald Robertson. Welcome to Stoa. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. Today I am talking with Donald Robertson. Thanks for joining. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks for chatting again. Let's start with a broad question that I've asked you before, but I'm interested in the always revisiting this question, as it were. How do you describe Stoicism these days to people? I mean, one is in terms of the history of it, but in terms of the content of the philosophy, first of all, I tend to explain to people, actually, I've changed my mind about this a little bit over time. Now, I'll often introduce it to people by saying it's a branch of Socratic philosophy that's heavily indebted to Socrates. And I mention that just because most people are kind of more familiar with the name of Socrates, at least. So it kind of gives them a bit of a reference point and it highlights that it's part of a broader tradition, which I think helps in some ways. But the central doctrine of Stoicism, as far as I'm concerned, is based around the slogan that the goal of life or the meaning of life, if you like, is living in agreement with nature. And what they mean by that is that we should actualize our potential fulfill our nature as rational beings and to live rationally to the best of our ability would be to live wisely. And so the goal of Stoicism is a kind of moral wisdom, which we also call virtue or arity. And then I'd add to that Stoicism is a, an ethical doctrine, but it has a really important and really obvious psychological consequence. And that is that if someone believes that virtue which is a character trait, is the only truly good thing in life, that it would follow from that, that they think external things like health, wealth, and reputation are at best of secondary value. And it would mean that they would be less perturbed if they were denied those things. So they would have a kind of psychological resilience and stoicism is known, therefore, for being associated with psychological resilience. And how is Stoicism Socratic? How did they use Socrates' method and as a figure? How is he inspirational to the Stoics? This is an interesting point to raise because it, it, it raises, a, it opens up a bit of a can of worms, mm-hmm. which how much do we know about Stoicism? Probably we have 
roughly 1% of the original Stoic texts surviving today. And most of what we have comes from late Stoics from the Roman Imperial period. We just have fragments really from the founders of Stoicism. And I think, you know, we get a pretty good idea about the central doctrines of Stoicism, because although we've only got a tiny fraction of the literature, it's pretty emphatic. It's pretty clear about what the central doctrines are. So it's not necessarily the case that we're confused about that. But one of the things that's missing from it, and there are several things perhaps missing from that literature, but one is there aren't that many examples of the Stoics using the Socratic method of questioning. And that's partly because in Seneca, you've got more letters and, you know, he's being a little bit more didactic. And in Marcus Aurelius, you've got notes to himself. Although in those notes, there are fragments of Socratic dialogue anyway. And in Epictetus, we actually have these kind of discussions that he's having with students. But although there's one or two instances, notable instances where he uses the Socratic method with them. So we know that the Stoics did use the Socratic method of questioning, and they're indebted to Socrates in that regard, although we only really get glimpses, unfortunately, of them, how they would actually do that in practice. So that's one way. And the other way is that Socrates implies, as some people would say, at times he appears to stay an ethical doctrine which the Stoics inherit and then develop more fully, and they get other ideas from him. But the main idea that they get from him is this idea that virtue is the highest and possibly the only true good in life and what the consequences of that would be. We see that in the Euthydemus, we see it in Plato's Apology, and then there's hints of it in other Socratic dialogues. So other schools of philosophy interpreted Socrates in different ways, most notably Plato has a different take on Socrates. But the Stoics, I think, would have argued that they were trying to get back to a simpler uh, and an earlier understanding of what Socrates was trying to communicate. So I suppose you have several Socratic doctrines that the Stoics share, at least interpretations of Socratic doctrines, like the idea that virtue is unitary. It's a single thing. Yeah, Um, that it can be taught. Yes, that it can be taught. Also, Socrates' cosmopolitanism, his belief that virtue exists in men and in women, his willingness to communicate with foreigners and slaves and people from all walks of life, which is a radical aspect of what he was doing. He didn't have the kind of elitism that existed in some other schools of ancient philosophy. And what we don't have in the Stoics, that, you know, what the Stoics kind of reject from Plato, like Socrates' main representative, a number of things. But one, well, Plato's kind of elitism, first of all, but also the theory of form, the kind of, that metaphysical doctrine Plato's particularly famous for, that he puts in the mouth of Socrates. The, the Stoics abandoned that completely. And I think the Stoics would say that was something that Plato had introduced and it wasn't really part of Socrates' original method. Aristotle implies, Aristotle at one point says that Plato invented the theory of forms from which mm-hmm. we can deduce that it wasn't Socrates who invented it and it was a later edition. Do you have a view on whether Xenophon's Socrates or Plato's Socrates is closer to the conception of a Socrates that Stoics would prefer. That's a can of worms. Oh, I thought you were going to ask me the harder question, which is which one's more accurate historically. Who knows? That's a real can of worms. I, the question about the Stoics is easier. I think the Stoics are far more aligned with Xenophon. Just that's the impression that I get, is that the Stoics would be more comfortable for a number of reasons. 
Xenophon places a lot more emphasis on what Socrates says about self-discipline and self-control, which I think resonates with the Stoics. In the surviving Stoic literature, it seems to me there's about as much emphasis on Xenophon's dialogues as there is on Plato's. But Plato's are much more famous, so that's it's kind of mm-hmm. not surprising that they vie with one another. And also we have this fragment, albeit the, in Diogenes Laertius, that says that Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, was inspired to begin studying philosophy because he read the memorabilia Socrates, or he, he overheard part of it being read. So I think the Stoics are seem to me to be more aligned with the Xenophon's version of Socrates. And that may be more, it's a simpler version of Socrates, so it may also be more consistent with what the original Socrates was saying, whereas Plato is a victim of his own success. So Plato was a genius, but he ends up, therefore, putting some of his own ideas, at least many scholars believe, in the mouth of Socrates, so kind of adulterating the Socratic philosophy to some extent. Right. Yeah. Xenophon was a genius of a different kind. So he had the historian background, the military background, extensive military background, but it may not have been as much of a cerebral or intellectual genius as, as Plato was. I think the Stoics, I mean, to go back to what we said earlier about how we only have a tiny fraction of the ancient literature surviving today, that we can assume that the Stoics had read a bunch of other stuff as well. Mm-hmm. There were many Socratic dialogues written by, I mean, we're told there were 10 different Socratic sects founded by different followers of Socrates in the generation after he died. And uh, we can see, for example, Marcus Aurelius quoting Socratic dialogues that don't exist anymore. And they mention authors like Antisthenes that were followers of Socrates that they seem to think are important and they're quite interested in. So the Stoics probably had a different picture of Socrates than we do because they probably had access to a different body of dialogues than the ones that survive today. Well, you've been in the modern Stoic movement for quite some time. To what extent would you describe it as Socratic? The movement itself. Just as a culture. In terms of its culture. I was thinking about this today, actually, in ways that it could be more Socratic, but that's not how you're asking. I cannot, I was thinking today it would be cool if we actually walked around in parks more talking about philosophy in the way that Socrates used to. But I think the modern Stoicism movement could be a lot more Socratic because I think in order to go off, it, it will go through stages in its evolution. To begin with, it had to introduce people to the doctrines of Stoicism. And I think as people become more familiar with that and the communities develop, I hope that we'll be able to facilitate more Socratic questioning, like more actual, more of the actual process of philosophy rather than just the doctrines of philosophy, because I think that's really integral to the Socratic tradition and to Stoicism as well. So we don't see modern Stoics doing a lot of philosophy. I think I've always said that I thought it would be good if people engaged in dialectic a little bit more and they learned a little bit more about logical fallacies for example and instead skills because this is integral to ancient stoicism so the process is missing a little bit but i think i hope i'm hopeful that evolve over time and just to zoom into that how would you sort of add some details or flesh out what that process would look like for people who are maybe not so familiar with dialectic i think very simply socrates thought it was problematic for people to learn philosophical doctrines that are kind of prepackaged, or particularly if they're mm-hmm. written down in books. He thought it was more important that we examine our own assumptions 
And there are, that's a tricky, you know, we could dig deeper into that perhaps, but it's a little bit of a, maybe it's a little bit of a tricky question why that would matter so much. But let's just say that it does, you know, intuitively we might think, okay, it matters that we actually learn how to think and learn how to question ourselves as a kind of therapeutic value rather than just kind of memorizing doctrines and things like that. Well, to do that, normally we do that by talking to other people, right? So to some extent, even if you do a degree in philosophy today, it's very different from the way that philosophy was done in ancient Greece. But you do sit in seminar rooms and question each other. Like somebody will say, hey, maybe this is what justice looks like. And someone else will say, hang on a minute. Like, how does that fit with this example? Or doesn't it contradict something that you said earlier? So mm-hmm. a very superficial level, you can say, look, we, when we talk to other people about ideas and we engage in philosophy, we're allowing them to kind of pick holes in what we've said and expose contradictions. And that's really, this, you know, in, in the simplest possible terms, the essence of the Socratic method. But Socrates also used his method in solitude. In fact, Epictetus tells us that Socrates used to keep written notes where he would practice question himself in a kind of self-help journal, if you like. So what it would look like today, I think it's easier to learn those skills if we're talking to other people. And then we can continue to use them in solitude. It's hard to learn them if we're only ever doing it in solitude because we have blind spots for our own assumptions and errors of reasoning. And it tends to be easier for other people to to highlight those and point them out to us. And that's actually something that's stressed in one of the texts that we have surviving by Galen, which is called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions. So Galen talks about how we tend to have blind spots that we need help addressing from other people. And that's, I think that's one of the benefits of talking to other people about philosophy. But in the Socratic tradition, we'd be talking... In modern academic philosophy, we tend to talk about kind of abstract things and, you know, right. metaphysics and stuff like that. But uh, in the Socratic tradition, it would be really much more personal. It would be about how we conceive what's to our advantage in life, how we understand the nature of wisdom as it applies to our own lives, how we understand what's good and bad with regard to the goal of life and things like that. So it it has a more obviously therapeutic orientation in Socrates and in the Stoics. That's right. Yeah, Socratic dialogues always begin with some concrete social situation, whether it's a dinner party with a variety of different friends kind of get along or a man bringing his father to court, whatever it is, it's not like a seminar room where you start with some abstract question. It's already embedded in the social context, as it were. And so it's funny because when we started doing modern stoicism, this is often how movements evolve or kind of original things evolve. We got, we've kind of gone through stages. We got, for the first few years, we got more pushback in some ways from academics. So initially what I noticed was academic philosophers gave us a bit of pushback because they said, you guys are interpreting the Stoics in relation to modern psychotherapy and self-help, and you're kind of projecting stuff into it that doesn't really exist there. And I always thought when they said that, it showed a kind of ignorance, a surprising ignorance of the prevalence of what I would call the medical metaphor or therapeutic metaphor in classical literature. It's quite prominent actually, in Plato's Socratic Dialogues, for instance, and it's pretty explicit in the Stoic writings as well. They definitely 
the Stoics wrote entire books called On Therapeutics and things like that. You know, and for example, Galen's On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions is pretty explicitly like a, a therapeutic text. So I think they underestimated how much that already existed in the classics. But that's changed now. No one argues about that anymore. It's, it, it's funny. There's a, these, sometimes these debates are quite heated and then they just die off. Like now everybody seems to agree that ancient Stoicism like had a therapeutic dimension. Yeah, and now it's too focused on the therapeutic dimension. Maybe some people think it's maybe too focused on that. I actually, funnily enough, I've always argued since the outset, even though my background's in therapy and I wrote mainly about the therapy, the, you mentioned the philosophy of CBT, the first I wrote in Stoicism. And in the introduction to that book, I emphasized that Stoicism is not just a therapy. Like, in fact, it's bigger than a therapy and it does something more fundamental than a therapy. It also addresses our ethical values in a way that normally we can't in, a, in the confines of a therapeutic relationship. But some, sometimes when people talk about Stoicism today, I think what you might be alluding to is they refer to Stoicism as a, like a life hack or a self-help approach. And some people who are interested in Stoic philosophy see that as a kind of superficial reading of things. Yeah, it does seem like it, it has a number of useful techniques, but as a philosophy, it doesn't end at those techniques, of course. And what makes it distinct from cognitive behavioral therapy is that there is this opinionated view on what it is to live a good life behind the philosophy that many people find quite valuable. Yeah, and th I mean, that's something that I really, from the outset, I thought that was what was so important about it, like transcended mm -hmm. what we can do in, in therapy. And I addressed some of the problems that clients have in therapy in a sense at a deeper level. And I guess I should say something I would take for granted is that because it targets our beliefs at a deeper level and at a more general level, it holds out greater hope as a form of emotional resilience building. Like, and I really think that's one of the reasons that modern psychologists and psychotherapists should be particularly interested in stoicism. So sometimes people say to me, oh, how can you use stoicism in a consulting room with a client? And I think that's not really, you know, where my focus is on it, funnily enough. It's more on the value that stoicism would have as a preventative, even from the perspective of cognitive therapy. It's what I see in it more as a wider value as a preventative form of education or training. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So one question, a number of people have sort of started asking themselves is, so we see a resurgence of ancient philosophies like Stoicism. Why aren't there similar resurgences for other Greek and Roman schools like Epicureanism? Do you have a this view on this? I've got lots of views on this. It's one of my favorite questions. This is another question that we asked really early on. Actually, I, I happily admit this is something I got wrong. And I changed my mind about it pretty quickly, though. When we, so we started doing Stoic Week in 2012, like... And we, so Stoic Week was an online event. It still runs every year. About mm. at least 20,000, maybe 25,000 people have done Stoic Week all around the world. We've gathered data from it. So it was started by Christopher Gill, who's Professor Emeritus of Ancient Thought at the University of Exeter. And then he put together a multidisciplinary team of psychologists and classicists and philosophers. And I was one of the founding members of that team. And, uh, we got a lot of media coverage in the early years. We were in most of the British newspapers mm -hmm. and BBC radio and stuff like that. 
And so Stoicism seemed to kind of explode in popularity and it grew bigger and bigger every year and it's still going. And at the beginning, I thought, I used to say, I, I reckon within a year or two, we'll have Epicurean week. And I thought, I remember thinking, I don't think we're going to see Cynic week happening in the same way, but maybe Aristotle week or Plato week. But I thought Epicurean week seems like a kind of an obvious one. And then the years passed and it never happened. Like, and I kind of watched and it seemed obvious to me why it wasn't happening. So first thing would be that none of those other schools of philosophy, I think, are certainly not the Epicureans, although they have really amazing texts, like really interesting texts, mm -hmm. I don't think any of them really have a book that compares to the meditations of Marcus Aurelius in terms of the breadth of its appeal. So I underestimated the extent to which we're starting from a base where like many people, like, I mean, there's something like a million people on Facebook say the meditations is their favorite list. Meditations is their favorite book. And that's not true, say, of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, right? It doesn't have that kind of accessibility. And even the Epicurean text, not that quite as accessible and not quite as popular. So I think that made a big difference. Like loads of people had already read the meditations. And I do believe that another factor is that Stoicism places a lot of emphasis on forming communities and collecting, you know, the store symbolizes in a sense, this kind of intellectual community and on social virtue, funnily enough. I know many people are interested in Stoicism, ignore that aspect or downplay it, but it's a central aspect of ancient Stoicism. And the Epicureans have a more ambivalent attitude towards social virtue and the idea of community. The Stoics, well, a simple way of putting it, right? The Stoics returned to the Agora to do philosophy out in public, in mm -hmm. the marketplace, outside the ivory towers of academia. The Epicureans did philosophy in a private walled garden outside the city. Like it, it was more among a close circle of friends. So Stoicism had always been more about public engagement, if you like, it's integral to the whole tradition. And it has that in common with Socrates, actually. But the Platonists and the Aristotelians also were kind of a little bit more exclusive. They were a little bit more ivory tower in their approach. And I think another difference that should have been obvious to me, but maybe I didn't, funnily enough, see how significant it was at first, is that Stoicism is the inspiration for modern cognitive behavioral therapy and the teachings of Stoicism are more consistent with modern psychological research on mm -hmm. the emotions than some of the other schools. Like, particularly, I think Epicureans don't understand this. Like, it's, it's their blind spot, if you like. But Epicureanism has never really had anything more than negligible acknowledgement or popularity among cognitive behavioral evidence-based psychotherapists or clinical psychologists because it, it seems on its face to really conflict with some of the state-of-the-art observations that we have about how our emotions work, to cut a long story short. So it's just, Epicureanism would seem, I think, to many evidence-based clinicians to potentially have bad psychological advice baked into it, and, and whereas Stoicism is more consistent with the type of advice that we tend to give clients. So that's another reason. So I guess the three reasons are the quality of the literature and the popularity of it, the emphasis on forming communities and on social virtue, 
and the fact that the teachings are consistent with modern evidence-based psychotherapy, all of that, I think, has contributed to Stoicism going through this renaissance and, and really leaving the other schools of philosophy in its wake. In what ways is Epicureanism not consistent with modern psychotherapy, in your view? Epicureanism places more emphasis on controlling or valuing our subjective feelings. Mm -hmm. So Epicurus said that the goal of life, the telos, was hedone, or pleasure. And then famously or notoriously, he refines that definition to say it's a particular type of hedone called ataraxia, which means freedom from distress, um, freedom from anxiety, freedom from pain, and so on. So he puts a kind of par famously paradoxical twist on what he means by saying that the goal of life is pleasure. Nevertheless, he says that. So whether it's pleasure or whether it's the absence of pain and distress, either way, these are subjective feelings. Now, we know in modern psychology that people who suffer from emotional disorders, like anxiety disorders and depression, we, the research shows and clinical experience shows they tend to be more preoccupied than normal with managing their subjective feelings. And so being overly preoccupied with trying to control those feelings, mm -hmm. there are many converging pieces of research that show that's problematic. And in fact, the easiest way to illustrate that, so we're talking about lots of different research, it's all converging in this, but an easy example would be there's data that show that people who respond very strongly to, the, to saying that they believe in and agree with the statement anxiety is bad, are more vulnerable to developing mental health problems in the future, right? This is a, a, a notorious research finding because those people will tend to experience a number of problems. Actually, I'll, let's do a quick deep dive and I'll explain what some of the problems are. Sure, let's do it. Right, let's do it. Let's just do it. Let's just go there. And so anyway, first of all, the belief that anxiety is bad is very similar to the central doctrine of Epicureanism, mm -hmm. which says that the goal is ataraxia, which would mean freedom from feelings like anxiety. Like, it would mean peace of mind, and it implies that disturbance, including anxiety, is therefore the most fundamentally bad thing in life. So why is this psychologically problematic? For a number of reasons. Like one is that because it places a lot, so much value, central value, like most value, supreme value, like on peace of mind, that naturally, what we value, we pay more attention to. And that naturally causes us to become more introspective and it encourages morbid introspection and rumination, which we know are associated with anxiety and depressive disorders. So somebody who really believes that the number one most important thing in life is freedom from anxiety is going to be focused on what's going on between their ears and less focused on what's happening out there in the world. And that's not a healthy balance to have psychologically. We also know that when people place a lot of negative value on subjective feelings, they usually amplify those feelings. So someone who really strongly believes that anxiety is bad will pay, they see anxiety as a threat. They see it as dangerous or shameful, for example. Like, so they'll usually focus so much attention on it that they cause those feelings 
to dominate their attention. And they kind of magnify, like putting them under a magnifying glass, if you like. They amplify the feelings by paying more attention to them. And we also know that those type of people will tend to be more motivated generally to use emotional coping strategies that tend to backfire. So someone who really believes that peace of mind is all important and anxiety is really bad will usually try and suppress feelings or force themselves to relax. And those strategies we know often backfire. There's a rebound effect often when there's mixed research on this, but typically the research indicates that if you ask people to try and eliminate unpleasant feelings or thoughts by forcing them out of their mind, they'll cause them to become more frequent in the days that follow. And that they'll also, like I said, kind of amplify them. They'll do something that we call elaborating an idea as well. So say you have an anxiety provoking thought that pops into your head and then you think, I need to get rid of that because I need to maintain my peace of mind. What you'll tend to do is interact with the thought more and create more associations between that thought and other behaviors and ideas. And because you create more associations, the thought will become more vivid and it's more likely to be triggered. So say you try to relax to get rid of feelings of anxiety, you potentially now create the problem that in the future when you relax through association, it triggers the feelings of anxiety that you were previously trying to get rid of. So anything that you do in response to a negative feeling potentially becomes associated with it, like, and that can backfire. And then the other problem is people who view anxiety as bad in many cases will try to conceal it from other people because they become ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. And what the, re- what the research shows is that those individuals often avoid seeking emotional support from family members or doctors or psychotherapists. And for the simple social reason that leaves them more vulnerable over the long term and less resilient. So some of those traits, ironically, this kind of toxic kind of suppressive attitude to some extent is associated with a trait that modern psychologists call stoicism, but lowercase s. Like, so we have a number of research tools that are used to measure lowercase stoicism. And so we'd ask people questions about, you know, whether they should try to get rid of feelings of anxiety or, you know, whether like anxiety is something they should be ashamed of, or they should keep it to themselves. They should try to prevent other people from being able to see it and stuff like that. So that's kind of what we mean by lowercase stoicism. It means having a stiff lip and we know from a number of different studies that people that score high on lowercase stoicism, although ironically they, they think of it as something that makes them tough, mm-hmm. it actually makes them weaker, like, because it makes them less resilient and more prone to mental health problems in the future. So I this is a good segue into, I guess, one of the main fundamental questions about stoicism today, which is what's the most common misconception about it. Right. And, you know, so we, we wandered into that territory by talking about this. The most common misconception about stoicism is that it's about suppressing your emotions. So if I had to define lowercase stoicism pretty concisely and technically, I'd say it's a personality trait or coping style that consists in suppressing or concealing unpleasant or embarrassing emotions, like, you know, boys don't cry kind of thing. And we know that's unhealthy. 
Whereas capitalist stoicism has a more nuanced approach to emotion that's the basis for cognitive therapy. So we've got quite a lot of research that suggests that capitalist stoicism would be good for your emotional health. And yet online, people every day confuse something that's known to be bad for emotional health with something that's known to be good for emotional health. So it would be important for us to try and separate those two things and clarify the difference. Practice Stoicism with Stoa. Stoa combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with meditation in a practical meditation app. It includes hundreds of hours of exercises, lessons, and conversations to help you live a happier life. Here's what our users are saying. This is it. I love the meditations. I've practiced meditations with other apps, but this just seems to be more impactful. Life changer. With Stoa, you can really get a sense of how to take yourself out of your thoughts and get a sense of how to handle different, difficult situations. Find it available for a free download in the Play Store and App Store. Yeah, I think many people would interpret Stoicism to be making a number of different claims, but at least one claim would be that anxiety is bad. But I think on both of our readings, the Stoics don't necessarily think that's true. There are certain judgments associated with anxiety that might be bad, but yeah. the feelings themselves or Correct. circumstances are not necessarily bad yeah. to be avoided at all. I think if somebody believes that Stoicism is saying that anxiety is bad, I would understand why they would draw that conclusion. And some, to some extent, it's partly due to the problem of translation from ancient Greek to modern English, and sometimes just kind of traditional misinterpretations or caricatures of the philosophy. But it's something we have to be extremely careful about because it's, it risks turning good psychological advice into quite kind of toxic or unhealthy, bad psychological advice. Mm -hmm. So the Stoics distinguished between different aspects. So actually, let me say, take a step back and say, because I think this is so important. I mean, I've worked in many different approaches to self-improvement and psychotherapy, many different types of clients, many different populations over many years, over about 25 years, you know, and there's many things that I could say about psychotherapy and resilience building and stuff like that. So it might surprise people to know that I think one of the most fundamental things that, you know, if we could teach it to kids kind of things, like one of the most basic things would be just that I think most people talk about their emotions using language that's overly simplistic. And that's the root cause of many psychological problems, in my view, personally. So we have what psychologists in the past have sometimes called a lump theory of emotion. So when somebody today talks about anxiety, they talk about anxiety as if it's a thing, like of this kind of homogenous blob of feeling or whatever. They don't distinguish, as you just did, actually. So you went beyond the lump theory already. Most people don't distinguish between the thoughts and the sensations, the physiological components of an emotion, the cognitive components of it, and also how their behavior or action tendencies contribute to an emotion. So you could see emotion, you could see anxiety as a cake that's baked out of many different ingredients. But if we talk about it as if it's just a homogenous blob, we're at a very primitive level of understanding it in other people, but also in ourselves. We can't really hope to get off the ground, can't even get started doing self-improvement or therapy or self-help unless we get beyond this 
incredibly primitive idea that an emotion is just a kind of homogenous blob of feeling. We have to look at it like a clock, a piece of, you know, clockwork. There's cogs and, you know, other components in it that make it function the way that it does. And the simplest possible distinction, I mean, one distinction would be between different types of thoughts or underlying beliefs and the sensations and physiology and the behavioral tendencies. So we could carve it up that way. But an even simpler way of dividing up emotion would be to say some aspects of our emotional experience are involuntary, whereas other aspects are actually under our voluntary control. And I can tell you and your listeners, in my experience, failure to distinguish between those two aspects of our emotion in depression or anxiety or anger is fundamental in with most of the clients that I've worked with over the years. It's kind of runs through a lot of the CBT that we do. But the Stoics dis did distinguish between different aspects of emotion. So they identified the cognitive component that you've mentioned earlier, but they also distinguished between propathei, like are they involuntary aspects mm -hmm. of emotion, like the more kind of physiological aspects of emotion and the more voluntary components. They were mainly interested in the more voluntary cognitive and behavioral aspects of our emotional experience. So as we're doing a deep dive, let me give you a really specific example of that like straight that's very relevant to today. If I have a client who has generalized anxiety disorder, the very common emotional disorder, we call it the worrying disorder, pathological worrying, right? So clients we know will typically, as I alluded to earlier, actually, will try to suppress or conceal their hands shaking or like their, their muscles tensing or their heart beating faster. They'll try to force themselves to relax or they'll take drugs or use alcohol like, or use distraction techniques to try to kind of control these feelings, which are actually, you know, automatic or involuntary physiological responses. Now we can take control over those feelings. We can influence them, but we don't have direct control over them. Mm -hmm. And because of that, many of the things that we do to try to control those feelings will tend to backfire in the ways that we alluded to earlier. But when clients come into therapy, it's like they're banging their head against the wall. Like people with GAD are constantly trying to be very preoccupied with like the hands shaking, the heart beating fast, or the feeling of anxiety, like trying to control it, like trying to manage it, try to avoid it. So they're trying too hard to control involuntary components of emotion. And at the same time, they typically neglect to control the voluntary aspects of emotion. And so the simplest example of that, apart from their actual physical behavior, like what they do with their arms and legs, the cognitively, the amount of time that you spend ruminating or worrying about the ideas that are triggered by anxiety is one of the main things that maintains generalized anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between automatic thoughts and voluntary thinking. Automatic thoughts tend to be fast. They pop into your mind. They're triggered by external events or things that other people say, or they just seem to happen kind of spontaneously. Like you suddenly think of something or sure, you're sure. reminded of something. Voluntary thinking is slower. And the sign, what tells us that it's voluntary in part is that it consists of a sequence of thoughts that are chained together. So you're reasoning. So people who worry feel like they're trying to prepare for a problem or they'd often describe it as problem solving. I'm trying to solve a problem here. I'm trying to figure out what to do. 
Like, so they're following steps in their head. Mm-hmm. And because the, the fact that they're following a sequence of steps is a clue that this is a voluntary cognitive process. Like, if nothing else, it follows a sequence that takes place over time that could be interrupted if you chose to do so, right? So it's not like just random, like, uh, automatic thoughts or intrusive thoughts. Like, you push one down, another one pops up over here. This is a sequence that could be interrupted or redirected, right? It's, you can take control over it. But clients tend not to, and in fact, we've got direct evidence of that. Because if you ask, if you get them to do a questionnaire, I'll just ask them to rate from zero to 100%, how strongly do you agree with the statement, my worrying is uncontrollable? Most people with GAD will say 100%, my 100% my worrying is uncontrollable. But usually within 15, 20 minutes, you can teach them like to figure out ways of control. They say, we know that they typically underestimate how much voluntary control that they have over that aspect of their emotional experience. So, I mean, I really think if we want to dig back and go, what's at the root of this? It's just in our culture, we have a very naive, overly simplistic understanding, a primitive understanding of what an emotion consists of. We don't even distinguish between the different aspects of it, but the Stoics did, as you alluded to earlier, they understood that they were involuntary aspects of emotion. So the propathii, the involuntary aspects of emotion in Stoicism are not bad. They're not good. Indifferent. They're naturally occurring and morally indifferent. Right. The voluntary components, the Stoics might say, are potentially bad insofar as we're voluntarily choosing to think about or ruminate about something in a way that places too much value external things or that is irrational or self-contradictory. So the Stoics would say that aspect is bad in that sense, but we could just stop doing it if we wanted. So there's a real kind of mess here that we find ourselves in and often in therapy, you know, where the process begins by helping people to disentangle these things. But the Stoics were, this is one of the areas where I think Stoicism is really is, I don't say this lightly, way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you just have to stop for a minute and remind yourself that Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and these guys dominated psychotherapy for most of the 20th century. And they didn't have the faintest idea of some of these kind of nuanced distinctions that were taken for granted in ancient Stoicism. So, you know, ancient Stoicism is more consistent with modern evidence-based psychotherapy than anything Sigmund Freud ever said. How weird is that? Like, so I'd, be, I'd say that to justify my seemingly hyperbolic claim right, right. that 2,000 years ago, the Stoics were way ahead of their game in terms of psychotherapy. One thing I've been wondering about recently is related to your point about salience. So one problem with Epicureanism, not just Epicureanism, is that it makes the internal more salient and that can have all sorts of effects. One in the example you gave would be the anxious person focusing on their feelings and thoughts over what they might be doing in the world or something of that sort. Do you think that the emphasis that at least quite a bit of culture has on mental health it can backfire in a way because it does cause people to focus more on their internal states. So whether it's 
you know, different advertisements from some therapeutic company or different sorts of awareness type weeks. What's your thought on that? Yeah, my, I, I'm not sure there must be research that would support conclusions about that, but I, off the top of my head, I can't think of an example. So I'll just speak anecdotally from personal mm -hmm. experience, right? An obvious example of that would be sometimes who join support groups for people with similar types of problems can benefit from it. Like there are obvious ways that people can benefit from talking to their peers. Sometimes, however, they get worse, right? So some individuals who have generalized anxiety disorder or OCD, if they speak to other people who have GAD or OCD, it just gives them more things to worry about, you know, and they start to develop symptoms that they didn't even have to begin with. And sometimes you'll find people who come into therapy, another, just an anecdotal observation, but a really obvious, simple observation. And I think any therapist would agree with us. Therapists talk about self-help junkies. A lot of the clients that come into therapy in the initial consultation will tell you they have a bookcase full of self-help books. They've been on every yoga and meditation retreat under the sun. Like, so they're completely immersed in wellness culture and self-improvement right. culture. And, but weirdly, and they may even believe it helps them in some ways, but at the same time, if you say, so like over the past year, do you feel that you've been getting worse or getting better? They'll say, oh, I'm getting worse. I mean, like, that's why I'm here. Like, and they'll look slightly confused about the kind of contradiction that they find themselves in. So they're doing loads of self-help and self-improvement stuff, but the condition's getting worse, right? And actually at the beginning of cognitive therapy, what we often do and I think, and this would be interesting to, to try and measure. I don't know if there's an easy way we can measure it. The impression that I get is that over the, even the last 20 years or so, psychotherapists have found themselves spending more time in the initial sessions, getting clients to abandon maladaptive coping strategies that they're already using. That's the impression that I get anyway, that this is got worse that people read self-help books and they maybe even contain what could be good advice for some people in some situations, but the clients that we see in therapy are often applying that advice in a way that's making them worse. I'll give you an example. Like, I mean, there's many examples. I'll give you the favorite example of most cognitive behavioral therapists. And that would be, we used to believe that relaxation techniques were really useful. And I still think they are actually, I'm a big fan of relaxation techniques. But for some clients, they caused a kind of unexpected problem. So clients who have panic attacks, for example, have overwhelming anxiety. And a very common type of panic attack is the belief that you're having a heart attack. Like, so people often go to A&E because they think they're dying and like, it turns out they're just they're having a panic attack. So the belief that you're dying is obviously going to make you anxious. And so it becomes like a vicious cycle. Like the more intense the anxiety is, the more you feel like you're going to die. And then the more that fuels the anxiety. So the anxiety spirals, like goes through the roof very quickly and it can feel very overwhelming. So some, in the past, people used relaxation techniques to try and suppress the feelings of panic attack. And that had kind of mixed results for them. But what we tend to do, there was a huge advance in the treatment of panic disorder in the 1980s because cognitive therapists started to kind of do the opposite and induce feelings of panic so that the clients could practice writing them out and proving to themselves that the feelings were harmless 
and that they weren't warning signs of a, a heart attack. And so in order to prove to yourself that those feelings are completely harmless, you have to be willing to experience them. Ironically, you've got to be open to the feeling. And so using relaxation techniques can be a form of what we call experiential avoidance today. Mm -hmm. It's a way of preventing yourself from experiencing feelings that you would have to experience in order to discover that those feelings are harm, in fact, harmless. And so it's very common now for psychotherapists to they would say they identify the client's coping strategies that might include self-help strategies or even strategies they've got from other forms of psychotherapy sometimes and to reevaluate whether those are actually helping or whether they might actually be standing in the way of them making progress. Yeah, that's right. Techniques are always sensitive to a given person and circumstance and what technique can be useful for some, be useful for some at some points in their life, or it might have different kind of effect later on. So one always needs to be careful with that. I think a lot of people who take the self-help junkie route are always looking for that one thing that will make it much, much easier. I'm not sure if that's your impression as well. There's another problem I would identify with the self-help junkie approach. So one is that sometimes people will use strategies in a way that's actually counterproductive mm -hmm. in the ways that we've described. Another problem that's more subtle is Suppose that you get advice and techniques that are good. You, you may nevertheless face the problem of selective thinking. So it might be that you've got some techniques that are really helping you in terms of your anxiety and strategies that kind of help you with your anxiety. And you do courses and you read books and you listen to podcasts and you're doing loads and loads of self-help. But maybe that's not your problem. Maybe your problem is anger and you lack social skills. And you're doing absolutely zero to address self-improvement in those areas where the real problem is located. So another problem is that self-help might potentially focus us in the wrong direction. <laughs> and I think that happens a lot. Like I, there's very little discourse online about self-improvement that addresses anger. And there are reasons why that would be the case. Because anger is an externalizing emotion. When people get angry, they tend to think everyone else needs therapy except them. You know, so angry people tend not to self-refer for treatment. They're more likely to be referred by a spouse or by an institution. Like if in, their, in the military, they might be sent for anger management. Or if it's a, a child in school, they might be sent by their teacher for anger management. Or someone, a prison inmate might be told that they need anger management. But very, it's very rare for someone to present in therapy voluntarily and say that their main problem is anger. They might come for depression. And say they've also got some anger as well. But so anger is a massively underaddressed psychological problem in society because of its very nature. And if you allow people to choose their own self-help, angry people will typically choose self-help that focuses on other aspects of their life. And that becomes a kind of diversion from tackling their real problem. And if you want evidence of that, just go online. And, you know, look at popular self-help and self-improvement gurus and see how many really angry young men there are following them and commenting on their videos and things like that. And the language that they use and the aggression that they exhibit and think, you know, you might think to yourself, you guys don't really seem to be improving psychologically. You're getting worse. Like, although you claim to be doing a lot of self-improvement stuff and reading a lot of self-improvement books. so. That's a more subtle problem because something can seem ben beneficial 
but it, it, it may be that focusing on it, it is preventing us from a, addressing another area where we have maybe an even deeper problem. Right. It could be a distraction or even an avoidant behavior. In, it. in therapy, it's easier because you have a psychotherapist and we can assess you, you know, and you, we can get you to fill out questionnaires so we can paint a more rounded picture of somebody's situation and target areas. And very often this therapist might listen to a client, giving them a long story about all the therapy and self-improvement they've been doing. The therapist might think that there's like obviously other stuff here that you haven't mm -hmm. done anything to address that's maybe, you know, like the real problem, the presenting problem often isn't the real problem as we see. Yeah, that's right. Do you have a view on, so I think in the Stoic community, there's a decent amount of evidence that people tend to be happy in your work, at least with Stoic Week and so on. But in the broader scheme of things, in the States at least, it doesn't seem like people have become significantly happier over time, despite there being more therapists available, some amount of economic growth. A very big question, of course, but I'm just curious what some of your thoughts are on you know, why it is mental health at best stable over time prevalence all these resources i would say that the evidence suggests that prevalence of mental health problems in like countries like america and the uk has increased gradually over time since we began measuring it anyway and it's, that's a tricky it's a complicated question because it raises all mm -hmm. sorts of issues about research artifacts the way that we're measuring it and stuff there's right. problems with the way that we classify and measure mental health problems. But nevertheless, the, famously, the National Institute for Health's prevalence study, which is the main body of research that we use for this in the US, a number of years ago found that something like, it was 52% of Americans had a history of meeting psychiatric diagnoses, having symptoms that would meet psychiatric diagnoses. And the reason that that's kind of weird is that Psychiatry used to be referred to as a branch of abnormal psychology, but if 52% of the population, like, as many people noted, have a history of meeting diagnostic criteria, then it's normal, like, and it would be abnormal never to have had like something strange about you if you've yeah, never right. met You're too diagnostic happy. criteria. Yeah, we've crossed the line now, whereas like the majority of us like have a history of mental health problems. So there might be like reasons for that, like I say, it raises questions about the way research is conducted, but it does look in some ways as if in particular, we're facing an epidemic of depression. I mean, my understanding is that social anxiety, a number of mental health problems really do look like they're becoming more prevalent. I just anecdotally, I really get the impression that social anxiety disorder is far more common now than it was in the past. And maybe that's not surprising, like because of certain changes in society and the way that people live, like people spending more time online and maybe less time socializing face-to-face -face and stuff like that would potentially make them more vulnerable to social anxiety issues. But it's long been observed that they were facing a kind of epidemic of clinical depression as well. And that's been a concern, for instance, in the UK with the British government. It was one of the motivations for the what they call the IAP program in the UK. The government poured a lot of money into research on introducing a whole army of clinicians to do CBT to address depression. Why is that happening? That's a hard question to answer, but just for the sake of putting something out there to get a conversation going, I the state one of the leading evidence-based treatments for depression 
is a thing called behavioral activation. Now, we used to believe that if someone was depressed, what you should do is get them to brainstorm a list of things that they find pleasurable and have them schedule doing more of those things. So to do make time in their daily routine to do more activities they find pleasurable. If that sounds a little bit odd at first, it, it's obvious if you speak to people and assess people with clinical depression. Like if you say, hey, can you list all the things that you over the years that you found most enjoyable in life? And then you say, hey, how many of those things have you done over the past week? Most clinically depressed clients will say, right. well, like none of them. And then the therapist should say, if I made a list of all the things I most enjoy in life, and then I quit doing all of them permanently, I'd probably start to feel kind of down after a while. Like, so, you know, the, there's an obvious sense in which they're we're behaving, their way of coping could be contributing to their depression. So it used to believe it used to be believed though that we should identify pleasurable activities in part of the treatment. But now we know that it's more about meaningful activities, valued activities. So now we tend to say to clients, what are your core values? What are the things that you want your life to stand for ultimately? And that means that therapy gets a little bit more Socratic, like right. a little bit more philosophical in, it, in its nature. Now, if you want to flip that around, I don't know, it's a bit of a stretch to infer something about society from that, you know, but I certainly think it's a good springboard for a debate. Is it possible? I'll pose it as a question that modern society has changed in such a way that people feel more out of touch with their core values than they did in the past? Are we living in a more alienated society where, you know, people feel more lost and more confused about what their core values might be? And, and then you might want to dig deeper and go, well, why would that have happened? You know, what is it about society that could potentially have caused that? I certainly find it strange. People don't talk about their values much, you know, although they, they talk about politics and they argue about mm. ethics and stuff like that. You, for most people, if you ask them, you know, what do you want your life to stand for? You know, what do you really believe is the most important thing? And like, this is like a novel conversation. Even people that are self-help junkies, they'll usually be like, I don't know, I've never really thought about that before. First, they're usually stuck for an answer or they give very superficial answers. So again, it shows there's a kind of deficit in their self-improvement and their self-understanding. But I think it could be that society's somehow led us to a point where we're all out of touch with our core moral values. Yeah, it's a big question. It's always hard to, on one hand, make a judgment which directions things are going. Because questions about, you know, depression, as you know, have all these measurement type issues. De definition of depression changes through time. People are responding to surveys versus people being diagnosed and so on. But it does seem, at least anecdotally, that at least in some pockets, not, so, not such a good spot complicated question and we have to be we have to be cautious about what the data say but i think it's fair to have a conversation about it and say yeah it kind of looks like maybe depression is becoming more of a problem and it maybe looks like it might be connected to this and yeah. at least then we can talk about it have you looked at research suggesting that depression is has social contagion type effects i don't think of i remember specifically looking at that to what sort of research did you have in mind what were the findings so the findings would be that if, you know, say they look at a high school, the number of, they can make predict reasonably well the number of depressed people from a year's time based off of the current number of depressed people. And they'll try to tease out other factors that might be influencing the judgment. Like, of course, the factors relate to the external 
environments and try the best explanation plausibly. Some people have argued are looking at people's relations to depressed people and how like tight those communities might be. I guess so this is just an, again, an anecdotal observation from clinical practice, but I think many clinicians would say, I think there's some research like, that would support this indirectly as well, that depression is one of the psychological conditions that often puts or, or overall puts more strain on relationships. So, you know, people have panic attacks or, you know, they've got OCD, it can put a strain on their relationship, but depression seems more consistently to put a lot of strain. A lot of marriages end because one of the, the partners suffers from depression. It can really affect people's performance and motivation at work. So depression, I think, has more of a kind of social impact than people tend to assume. And so I could easily see there might be ways in which it's contagious. It strains relationships. It really even affects, it affects the way that people communicate. And actually it does one of the worst things to communication. Like even if people are communicating in a way that's strained, at least they're communicating. Whereas what depression does is reduce or eliminate communication with other people. So there's not even an opportunity to kind of improve in that regard, if we're just right, not talking right. to people at all and we become completely withdrawn. So I, that's partly why it can be quite problematic, definitely. And, you know, it may be, funnily enough, one of the things that Tim LeBon's research on stoicism is just from pilot studies. So very early, you need to replicate this. Tim LeBon's the research director of modern stoicism. And he said he'd been gathering data for like a decade, from thousands and thousands of participants online. And also working with other researchers around the world, you know, one of his favorite things to point out to people is that they found measures of zest that were correlated with stoicism and improved. And by zest as a construct, we kind of mean joy, if you like, or enthusiasm for life. And that seemed with surprised people to find that seemed to be improved by training in stoicism, you know, so maybe I... Who knows? We'd have to, I, I'm, I'm very keen that we do more research in this area, but it could be that by training people in stoicism, we could help to reduce the prevalence of depression. I mean, certainly in a number of ways, I think we can help improve emotional resilience generally. One of those reasons, incidentally, is that what you said reminds me, this is a slightly at a tangent, but it's, it's, it's related enough, I think, to point this out. And it's interesting. Resilience building is a kind of emerging field. So we know that there are psychological techniques from positive psychology and CBT that can help people build their emotional resilience. But what studies have tended to find so far is that it's temporary. So if you train people in resilience skills, they might benefit for a few years, like a couple of years, but then the effect tends to wear off. Mm -hmm. That happens often with skills training. There's certain things that you can teach people that stick and are permanent. And then there's other things that you train them in and it lasts a few years and then they're back to square one right, again. Right. And so, you know, that suggests resilience training would have potential, but you'd have to keep doing booster sessions. A bit like the COVID vaccine or something like that. You, know, you kind of think, oh, great, we've got a vaccine. Oh, no, we're going to have to keep getting another one. Like, so resilience building is a bit like that. At first we thought, oh, wait, hey, this worked. It only worked for a couple of years. So you're going to have to keep doing this training course every couple of years, potentially to benefit long-term permanently, which would be the goal. But stoicism, we believe, could perhaps be sticky 
Like, because people who get into stoicism very often remain into stoicism for the rest of their life because it's not just a bunch of techniques. It's a philosophy of life and a set of mm-hmm. moral values. Like, so it's more like, like yoga in that regard. People who get into yoga often remain into yoga for the rest of their life. Whereas, you know, the research on back pain shows that if you get people to do physiotherapy exercises for the back, they do them and they benefit from them, but often they get bored with them and stop doing them after a while. Whereas yoga maybe benefits some people that have got back pain, but they do it for the rest of their life. So it's stickier. And that's really important. And it may be that stoicism provides us a way of training people in CBT techniques or positive psychology techniques or techniques that are similar to those that gives them a framework that would make it permanent or long-term. And that's the holy grail of mental health research is to come up with a preventative psychological training that would have stickiness. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think stoicism attaches to people's identities and things that attach to their, I, having something attached to your identity means that so you're more likely to keep it up. The way I like to illustrate that is I've never met any, I mean, I'm, I keep throwing down this gauntlet and I've been doing this for like, I've been saying this for well over a decade and I've still never met a single person who has an Albert Ellis tattoo or an RNT Beck tattoo or really any cognitive therapy quote tattooed on them. I've seen people with serenity. I've never seen anybody with a CBT tattoo, but I have seen many people, including Ryan Holiday, like who have stoicism tattoos, right? And it might seem like a glib thing to, to say. I'm half joking, but you know, the point I'm making is that people identify with stoicism like to the extent that they get tattoos, like it's not just like a bunch of techniques. It's something that becomes part of their self-image like in a way that cognitive therapy never could. And another way of putting that would be people read Feeling Good by David Burns or other best-selling books on CBT. And usually they read it once and then, you know, maybe they go back to it a bit, but I don't meet people who say that they read a book on CBT and they reread it every year. Like right. they carry on, go back to it for the rest of life. But people who read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius often keep returning to the text. Like, like people with the scripture, like the Bible or something, they reread it and dip back into it repeatedly for the rest of their life. You know, they don't do that with books on CBT. So of course the benefits of a book you read once are going to be less long lasting than the benefits of a book that you keep rereading. Right. Yeah. I've got probably got four or five translations behind me, which is, um, that's a good example. That's another good example. The people have multiple copies. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add, Donald? About stoicism. I guess in general. Life Life in general. I think if people want to get into stoicism, a good resource, apart from your own, is that they may want to check out the Modern Stoicism nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. It's a philanthropic nonprofit organization. It's been around for a long time, since the kind of beginning or the early days of the modern stoicism revival, if you like. And uh, we run Stoicon, the conference every year. And uh, there are many other conferences around the world, the Stoic Week every year. And lots of other resources, like on the website and events that people can get involved with if they, you know, it's again, it's a sign of stoicism evolving as a, as a community and a kind of around the world. So that, that's something that I'd point people towards if they're interested. And also I should mention 
my own. I'm one of the founding members of the Modern Stoicism organization, but I'm also the founder and the president of a nonprofit in Greece called the Plato's Academy Center. And the goal of that organization, its main goal is to raise funds to build a conference center at the original location of Plato's Academy in Athens, not on top of it, but beside it. Right. right. So a JJ don't worry. It's <laughs> beside it. It's a poorer suburb of Athens. There's mm. lots of derelict buildings and office blocks and things like that. We think there should be a conference center there so people could come and practice the Socratic method and do philosophy and read Xenophon and Plato and stuff like that there. And we've run some events there already. We had a big event there last year and we got a lot of support from the Greek government. The mayor of Athens was there. And the Minister for Development and Investment was there. And the US Ambassador to Greece was there. And we got a letter of support from the Minister for Culture. We've got a lot of government support behind it. And now we're going to be running another event in Athens, I think, this October, although it's early days yet. But uh, yeah, the Plato's Academy Centre is, again, a kind of philanthropic non-profit project that I encourage people to check out. If they're interested in Stoicism, but then maybe they want to kind of like dig a little bit deeper into the tradition Stoicism stands within. Absolutely. Yes, I'm excited. excited to go to Athens. It's awesome. And, you know, even beyond Athens, the kind of secret is you can go like outside Athens is Eleusina or ancient Eleusis, where the Eleusinian mysteries were carried out. That's an amazing archaeological site. It's like half an hour's drive from Athens. But uh, tucked away in the mountains a couple of hours drive outside Athens is Delphi, which mm -hmm. is a phenomenal archaeological site. So we're, our dream is kind of also to run conference. There's a conference center there, like to run. It's just, it's kind of tricky to get transport people there. Right. But to run events in Delphi in the future, where the Oracle, the Pythia said that no man is wiser than Socrates. And, you know, the Pythia is the kind of planted the seeds of much of ancient philosophy. That's where the inscription was on the entrance to the Temple of Apollo or made in Agan, nothing in excess. Openings in moderation was also inscribed there. So it's kind of like these little koans or sayings right. that were the seeds of much of ancient philosophy originates in the Temple of Apollo and Delphi. So we'd like to see events happening there in the future as well. Yeah, the ruins of Delphi are beautiful. And there's a nearby town called Arakova, which I'm sure you've, yeah, that's right. you've been to. And yeah. it's a very beautiful spot. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Always good to talk to you. Been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you use, and share it with a friend. We are just starting this podcast, so every bit of help goes a long way. And I'd like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. Do check out his work at ancientliar.com and please get in touch with us at stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback or questions. Until next time.